Hello, and welcome to Matt and Don's Main EMS Fireside Chat. My name is Jonathan Busco. I'm the Medical Director for Main EMS Region 4, and I have the privilege of being your guest host today to discuss the changes that were made in the trauma protocols in the 2013 protocol update. I was the lead editor for this section, and so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the changes we've made and what they mean. Generally, philosophically, when we talk about trauma management, we tend to think of two groups. We've got the patients with minor trauma that are easily stabilized, and in fact, what would be considered BLS care for patients, uh, the things that really make people comfortable, and then we can add to that pain management, which of course is an ALS skill. And then we have the patients who are critically injured, and in those patients, historically, the role of EMS has been rapid transport to a trauma center or the nearest emergency department for more advanced stabilization. In that group, we've not really carved out the sickest or perhaps you could say the most stable of those patients, and those are the patients who are in traumatic cardiac arrest. And so I want to talk to you just generally about the changes we've made and then focus on some changes we've made around the patients in traumatic cardiac arrest. So we start with deciding who's sick and who's not. In 2011, the CDC released guidelines for field triage of injured patients. And these are like our old guidelines. They gave you a number of criteria by which you could sort out which patients needed to go to a trauma center, which patients could simply go to the closest trauma participating hospital, and which patients you really didn't need to worry about much at all. Now, we have the outcomes that we want in main EMS. We're able to get our trauma patients where we need them to, but our criteria are a little bit convoluted. Being able to calculate a revised trauma score on the fly is not the easiest thing in the world. And so the CDC guidelines, which are becoming a national standard or a national set of guidelines seem to offer an easier way to do this. And we've adopted those, but by doing so, we've taken our old outcomes, that is, where we want patients to go in certain conditions, and we've tied those to the, the CDC guidelines. And the reason why is that we get the outcomes we want. So there shouldn't be difficult concepts in this. You just makes it a little bit easier to sort these folks out. We added or perhaps reminded folks in the spine assessment that we're in fact assessing the entirety of the spine. It's not just the patient's cervical spine we care about, but the entire spine. This was always the intent because we know that if there's a fracture at one level, the, non, the non-cervical levels of the spine, there's a pretty good chance there's actually an associated cervical spine fracture as well. And so as you're assessing patients for your spinal rule out, if you have suspicions of a fracture at another level, make sure that you actually immobilize the entire spine because there may well be an associated cervical spine fracture as well. Now in our current chest trauma protocols, we've really looked at those as essentially people with chest injuries who have tension pneumothoraces. And that's not true. There's actually a number of injuries that can occur to the chest that we as EMS providers can perform an intervention on to actually help these folks. 
tensioned pneumothorax is one of them, although certainly in the blunt trauma literature, we know pretty well that needle decompression really doesn't do all that much. Um, it, either the physiology of injury is such that the tension pneumothorax is only a very small part of what's going on, or frankly, we're not getting the needle into the chest. Um, this is particularly true as the obesity rates in the U.S. have gone up quite a bit. But there, again, are other injuries as well that we need to think about. And one of them is the concept of the open chest wound. Now, the pathophysiology of a sucking chest wound is that the hole in the chest is bigger than the hole in your airway. And so when you operate the suction system that's your chest that pulls air in, you preferentially pull air through this big hole in the chest wall. Well, getting rid of the hole in the chest wall isn't mandatory for making more air come in through your airway. And in fact, if you do positive pressure ventilation on someone with a sucking chest wound, you've eliminated the sucking chest wound physiology altogether. You're pushing the air in and the wound in the chest becomes irrelevant. But even if you aren't, if the patient's breathing spontaneously, you can't know is there respiratory distress from the sucking chest wound physiology? Is it from the injury to the lung? Is it from another injury altogether that you're not detecting? Your biggest risk with those injuries is probably exsanguinating hemorrhage from the wound. And so if we want to kill two birds with one stone, by taking a bulk, bulky dressing and putting it right over that wound to stop the bleeding, we also create a lot of resistance to air movement and probably actually shift the physiology of the bellows system of our chest, the suction system, back to pulling air through the airway. And so unless you have a single penetrating wound that clearly is the only source of injury and you can hear the air whistling in as the patient inhales, a three-sided dressing is that's occlusive is not necessarily the best thing to do. So what we would advocate for you to do is to take a bulky dressing and dress that wound the same way you would any other large bleeding wound, knowing that that's going to improve the physiology if, in fact, there is a so-called sucking chest wound. In our management of hemorrhage, there were really two points that were important. First, the experience that we've had as a nation at war over the last decade plus has shown us that patients with traumatic injuries die from exsanguinating hemorrhage before they die from airway compromise. And that's been a mantra in the tactical world for almost a decade, and if not longer. And so we've changed our concepts from ABCD in management of non-cardiac arrest patients to XABCD, and X is controlling exsanguinating hemorrhage. Now, the other interesting thing about our old, our old protocols, and I don't think anybody was really doing this, but if you looked at the old protocols, any patient who had bleeding uh, required that we request ALS. And that doesn't make much sense. If I have a forearm laceration and I've completely controlled the bleeding and I'm hemodynamically stable and I don't need pain medications, that's completely a BLS call. And certainly I would never, uh, in my years of working at the BLS level, have considered calling for ALS backup for a patient like that, and it, it just doesn't make sense medically. And so we've clarified that in the protocols. If the patient's bleeding is controlled, 
if they're hemodynamically stable and if they don't need pain management, a BLS transporting service does not need ALS backup. Uh, the same issue came up in our head injury patients. Again, our, our protocols aren't written to describe a full spectrum of what's going on with a patient. We're looking at the sickest patients, but our head injury protocol would suggest that you needed to require, uh, you needed to, you were required to immobilize every patient with a head injury. Well, patients with minor head injuries certainly don't need to do that. So assess patients and use common sense. I think people mostly wear anyway, but we want the protocols to reflect practice and not box you in and put you at risk for violating the protocols, which really are your standard of care. We also discussed the need to manage seizures in patients with head injuries, and we've already got a good seizure protocol, so we refer people to that. We talked about burns, and again, we're trying to make the math easy. So in a burn patient, we typically use the Parkland formula to guide our fluid resuscitation. The problem is, is that you have to take your volume and you have to multiply it by your weight and your body surface area, and then you have to figure out that you deliver half of that in the first eight hours, and then you have to divide that by eight. And that's really kind of frustrating to do all that math. You have to do it on the back of an envelope or pull out your smartphone. What we decided to do was knowing that EMS services are delivering fluid in the first eight hours, we could simply give you, we could do the math in advance and give you the formula for administering IV fluids on a per hour rate. And so you'll see that clarified formula um, that basically is the, the 2 ml per kilogram that's delivered in the first eight hours uh, with the body surface area figured in there, divided by 8, so 0.25 ml. And if you want to do the math, uh, it's pretty straightforward algebra, but it really will make your life easier. We've tried to improve our pain management uh, to become closer to national guidelines on pain management. It is important to keep patients comfortable after we've dealt with the X, A, B, C, D, so the last and possibly the most important thing that I want to talk to you about are changes we've made in management of out-of-hospital traumatic cardiac arrest. We know after decades of research that outcomes for patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest are grim. Even with the best of care, these patients don't do well. And that makes sense. To get to the point where you're in a cardiac arrest from trauma, you either have to have suffered devastating injuries or have massive blood loss, the exception being Camosio Cordis, the little leaguer who gets hit in the center of his chest with a baseball and goes into cardiac arrest. But accepting that, we really know that if you have pre-hospital traumatic cardiac arrest, whether it's penetrating or blunt trauma, you don't do well. And the only chance of survival you have is if you've got some easily reversible cause, something that we can take care of in your peri-arrest period in the pre-hospital environment. And if we can't, well, transporting a patient in traumatic cardiac arrest to the hospital 
really becomes just rapid transport of a dead body to an emergency department. We know that's not safe for crews. We know that that's not safe for the general public. We know that that's not good medicine. So we wanted to try to make the protocols really reflect the reality that these patients typically don't survive no matter what we do, but that we want to give them the opportunities of survival if they exist. So first and foremost, if you find a patient on a trauma scene and they're in cardiac arrest, you need to make sure this isn't a medical arrest. So if there's no injuries, there's no mechanism that would make you think trauma contributed, treat this just like a medical cardiac arrest and manage them accordingly. Uh, if, on the other hand, it's clear that this is a trauma arrest, then you need to think about whether or not there's anything that makes you think they're going to survive. If they're a victim of a lightning strike, if hypothermia is present, or if drowning is present, these all predict a much higher chance of survival, and so your resuscitation should be oriented towards that. If, however, the patient is in a true traumatic cardiac arrest, then you really need to stop and think about what's the most appropriate thing to do. And the majority of times, the most appropriate thing to do is nothing at all. These patients don't have a chance of survival. In all patients with traumatic uh, cardiac arrest, we need to look at the other signs that this death occurred long before we got there. Do they have rigor mortis? Do they have decomposition? Do they have a line of lividity? Or are these injuries that aren't compatible with life? Incineration, decapitation, hemicorpectomy, people don't survive those and do not begin resuscitating those patients. If that's not the case, then you really have to answer the question, did the patient have vital signs or signs of life when I arrived on scene? And by signs of life, we're talking about spontaneous respirations, possibly a palpable pulse that's lost, um, pupillary reflexes, spontaneous movement. Those are all pretty positive predictive signs. And so if those are present when you're on scene, but the patient is, then goes into cardiac arrest, if it's a blunt trauma arrest, you can stop the resuscitation at that point or essentially not begin a cardiac resuscitation. If you're going to begin any resuscitation, it should be to try to fix those problems that can cause cardiac arrest and can be fixed in the pre-hospital environment. And there's two of those. They're both events that cause what I would call a pseudo-arrest state. We talk about the PEA arrest, pulseless electrical activity. Well, all that means is you can't feel a pulse. If I had an arterial line in, I might see that the patient has a blood pressure. As long as the patient has a contracting heart and adequate volume to move, they may be able to sufficiently perfuse their brain. Now, we're not going to know for sure whether they're doing that, and we know that if it's longer than 15 minutes until they can get a pulse restored, they don't survive. But hypovolemia and tension pneumothorax are both disorders that can be addressed in the field that have the potential to have a positive outcome. 
And so while you're not obligated to do this, you can consider in the patient with blunt trauma arrest performing non-selective bilateral needle chest decompression if you think there's any evidence of trauma to the chest or that attention pneumothorax may be contributing to the arrest. And you can consider a fluid bolus, one liter, potentially two liters, and see if you get return of spontaneous circulation. And if you do, transport the patient. By all means, you have corrected physiologic states that were creating a pseudo-arrest state. But if you don't get return of spontaneous circulation, do not transport these patients. They are dead, and you are not going to improve their outcome by transporting them. You're going to put yourself and the public at risk. So consider those interventions. If they're unsuccessful, stop. Now what happens when you've got that patient who's got signs of life that you load in the ambulance and then they lose signs of life? Well, if your transport time is less than 15 minutes, you could, and that's safe transport time, that's not putting the public at risk, that's not putting you at risk, that's driving calmly to the local emergency department. If that transport time is less than 15 minutes, then you could certainly consider transporting that patient, uh, but don't make that your default position. Your default position in blunt traumatic cardiac arrest should be, I'm not going to start resuscitation. Now, for penetrating trauma arrest, the situation changes slightly. In theory, a penetrating chest injury may be correctable with an ED thoracotomy. Uh, same may be true with a penetrating injury to the aorta and the abdomen. And so we change the game a little bit, not much. But in that case, if the patient goes into cardiac arrest and, again, transporting safely, not putting yourself or the general public at risk, if that patient can be transported to the nearest emergency department within 15 minutes of the onset of the cardiac arrest, not your arrival on scene, but from when the cardiac arrest started, you can have them 15 minutes later in an emergency department, you can strongly consider transporting those patients. Again, you're not absolutely obligated to, but they may have a chance with an ED thoracotomy of restoration of spontaneous circulation and survival. Now, unfortunately, survival is just as poor in children as it is in adults with traumatic cardiac arrest. And so these protocols apply to both adults and children. In either case, traumatic cardiac arrest, blunt or penetrating, adult or pediatric, your default position on scene should be not to resuscitate and only after significant consideration of potential survivability based on interventions that you can do, the needle chest decompression, the fluid bolus, or in the case of the penetrating trauma, getting them to an ED thoracotomy within 15 minutes of the arrest. Only then should you consider transporting these patients. This is going to be emotionally challenging because the patients who suffer from traumatic cardiac arrest typically tend to be young. They tend to be within our own peer groups. They are people like us, and it's very hard 
to take some to say that someone who was healthy and then had an instantaneous event and are now in cardiac arrest that that person is not salvageable but the fact is they really aren't and so you need to do what's best for your safety and the safety of your crew safety of the general public now if it's not safe for you to terminate the resuscitation feel free to move the patient to the ambulance you can either consider terminating the resuscitation there or transporting the patient at that point but again the chances of there being a positive outcome are almost non-existent so on that note uh, our hope is that with the revision of the protocols we'll provide better care for patients we'll have better outcomes and we'll use our resources more wisely and not perform futile activities particularly in the face of traumatic cardiac arrest thank you for your time any questions please contact the main EMS office